You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me again is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello. Also in the booth this week is Mr. Jim Leskowski. Liberty to dreams. This week we wrap up September 2018 with a look at Vaclav Vorlicek's 1966 film, Who Wants to Kill Jesse? The film was co-written by Vorlicek and Milos Makarek and concerns a couple... The subtitles call them Henry and Rose, and so I guess we can call them Henry and Rose, but we'll probably also call them by like their proper names as we go through here, Yindrik and Rosenka. So please forgive me if we switch back and forth. But anyway, Henry and Rose, Rosie is a prestigious scientist who has discovered how to manipulate dreams, so there are some unexpected consequences, while Henry makes his own discovery as he reads a comic series about Jesse and sees her anti-gravitational gloves, just the thing to help him out at his job. Now, we're going to be getting to spoilers galore in this episode, so if you don't want anything ruined, be aware. Otherwise, just sit back and enjoy the lunacy. Jonathan, when was the first time you saw Who Wants to Kill Jesse, and what did you think? I saw it around 2005 or 2006, so around that time. And um, at that point, I was already deep into post-grad research on Czech film. And I saw it on a, a DVD that I'd ordered from the Czech Republic. So it was one of a series of so-called Golden Fund uh, titles that the uh, Czech Republic was then releasing. And helpfully, they were releasing them with English subtitles. And it was probably the first film of this kind that I saw from Czechoslovakia. So I, I was very familiar with the new wave films, but this was the first of the so-called crazy comedies that I saw. So uh, I guess this is quite a different tradition from the new wave, but it really won me over immediately. Uh, I thought it was very funny. It was witty. It was very well paced, full of great ideas. And I was really into surrealism at this point. So I think any film that features a cow lying in a hammock within the first 10 minutes, I mean, sold me immediately. So uh, yes, I loved it right from the beginning, really. Let's not forget the chamber orchestra or the four piece. That's sure. Fine. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. what cows really want. How about you, Jim? Many years back, uh, when I was discovering that you could rent movies by mail or find some obscure gems uh, up in the city of Chicago because I was living out in the burbs, I had the opportunity to visit uh, Facets Multimedia. And based on just me browsing through and reading the synopsis, I just I had to see this movie. And this was a while ago. But I'm just a huge fan of movies about dreams and psychology. Uh, that's kind of what I mainly focused on in college. And dreams are just a subject that's just ripe with possibilities, you know, in terms of how visually playful you can get. 
and I'm kind of unapologetic in my love for most movies that want to explore any kind of dream landscape. And and that includes everything from dreamscape to that very uh, creepy recent documentary, The Nightmare. I just, I consider myself just a real enthusiast for when characters want to explore their subconscious. So I saw this one, yeah, like I said, maybe two decades ago and just thought it was a delightful kind of screwball romp. And I had no familiarity with with Czechoslovakia in terms of their cinema output outside of like Milo Schwarman. But this sort of like playful approach to the new wave really won me over. And this concept in the film predates a movie I've still yet to see in its entirety due to the length of the director's cut. But I, I know there's a similar device in the, the vendors film until the end of the world. And that's what I've been waiting to hopefully catch because I know there's an extended cut that everybody raves about. So I, I, that's one of those dream movies that I'm excited to see at some point. And I hear that uh, that's more like the serious take on what we see in uh, Who Wants Who Wants to Kill Jesse. I had no idea what that movie was about. I was just afraid it was going to be like a five-hour music video for the U2 song. Well, that would be pretty lengthy for, for a music video, but I, would, that would, I wouldn't be surprised if U2 ever put one out. They do like to self-indulge a little bit. Yeah, no, but I hear it's a great movie. It's just uh, the extended cut. Yeah, and then, like the five hour cut is supposed to be the one to see, and I just haven't had the opportunity yet. So I came at this one kind of like you, Jim, through the Facets release, and they released this one, and they also released, uh, well, they released a ton of stuff, and they released The Fifth Horseman as Fear, which we talked about earlier this month, but they also released Lemonade Joe, and that was my first exposure to Oldrich Lipsky. And through Lipsky and through Vorselak, there's a lot of great comedies out there. And the guy I already mentioned, Milos Makorek, the um, writer of this or co-writer of this, between these two directors and this writer, there is just a wealth of amazing comedies out there that just, they transcend what films generally do. Last year, we talked about Happy End, which runs... The film runs backwards and then the narration runs forwards and there's just all of these amazing things that they're doing as far as playing with the form. And this one doesn't get as far out as that, but this whole idea of bringing these comic book characters into the real world is a really neat idea. And then also the whole idea of the the word bubbles and all these things and just how they have their superpowers and there's all these sight gags and all of these things going on, but then there's also like a great underlying story of basically about mind control going on at the same time. And here we are in Czechoslovakia in 1966, you know, the Prague spring has yet to happen. So there's some interesting things that are happening below the surface that I think like all films that I really like are getting snuck out through genre interpretations. And there's a, the, the nice, actual story happening at the same time, which doesn't necessarily detract from the ongoing surface story, but just kind of adds another layer of richness to it. Uh, Something that I uh, really appreciate about these films too. Um, I think the crazy comedy genre in Czechoslovakia is really unique because uh, it's uh, it's hard to place it really, I think, in terms of uh, our experience of Western comedies because they mix everything i mean they have slapstick they have farce but they also have parody 
And I think fundamentally, as you say, they are comedies of ideas. So you've got lots of ideas in this one about mind control. You get other films that look at gender identity. And uh, and yeah, as you say, they're kind of beneath the surface. They're not um, up front. They're, nothing is really hammered home as an explicit uh, political message or philosophical message but these ideas are there and they're floating around and uh, they're there to be taken up if you want to or you can just enjoy them as as funny films and um, I think there's been a tendency in Czech criticism and and film scholarship to in a way to distinguish these films from the new wave and uh, there was an article written um, I guess about 10 years ago now by um, Petra Hanakova, which is really good in looking at that context. And she says that uh, for a long time, these films were slightly shameful. They were slightly, uh, they had a slightly pejorative uh, reputation because I guess these directors continued making films through the communist period. So they didn't really get, uh, they didn't really suffer the kind of political um, consequences that some of the new wave directors had and I think there's been a tendency because of that to uh, distinguish them to put them at a, at a remove from the new wave but I think now at this remove I think when we look at them now I think we can see how close the connections are I think the idea that you know you can sort of separate these films off and say well these are just kind of popular comedies I mean it's it's really not a legitimate way of looking at them anymore I think looking at a film like this now I mean, it feels really like a 60s film. I mean, the, the connections with the new wave, I mean, are very much there, I think. So I think, yes, we can take a different view now, I think, of Czech cinema. That's unfortunately the thing is that, oh, because it's a comedy, we'll just kind of put it over here. You know, it's not a real serious work of art. But then, yeah, you can just, you don't even really have to dig too deep to see what's going on with this one, which is kind of a nice thing. I mean, in all of these films, I mean, you know, last year when I talked about Happy End, I mean, the the juxtaposition of my lovely childhood and how we would play in the yard, and that's being juxtaposed with our main character who's now in a prison and doing exercises in the prison yard. I mean, there's, there's always those, like, little knife kind of coming in under the surface and just being like, yeah, no, there's there's actually something happening here. It's interesting, too, because so many of these comedies, almost like a, a troupe of people who are putting these together. You know, I talked about how the, the writer would work on Lipsky's and Vorselec's stuff. And then the actors, I mean, the guy who plays Mr. Kolbaba was our main character in Happy End. And he's been in so many films. Vladimir Menzik, who we've talked about many times on this show because he just pops up in everything. And also our titular character, Jesse Olga Schroberova, she shows up in Dinner for Adele, and she's in Lemonade Joe, and then the guy who is uh, Pistolnik, the um, outlaw cowboy figure from the comics, Carol Effa, he also shows up in both Dinner for Adele and Lemonade Joe, as well as a ton of other things. So it's like, we just get these repeated faces going throughout here, and these repeated people, but you know, it's a good way of entry into these things. It's just like, well, let me see all of the things that Carol Effa has worked on because a lot of them are really damn good. I'm not as familiar with this director's body of work, but I'm very curious to track down some more simply due to like the, the titles of some of them. Like, you are a widow, sir, and a nice plate of spinach. <laughs> like, what? what is all this about? And especially after, you know, rewatching this, I'm like, 
Well, this one is, you know, won me over and it's so charming and it's got this, you know, these surrealist, absurdist touches throughout. Um, I'm, I'm very curious to discover more of this ilk, I got to say. I think the, the film that he made, that Vorlicek uh, made after, is uh, really worth seeing as well because that's like a James Bond-style parody. So I think there's a, a strong point of connection with this one in that sure. uh, I guess they were parodying something that was still fairly new or even to many people, I guess, unknown in Czechoslovakia at the time. And I think this is another remarkable aspect about the parodic uh, quality of these films. And I mean, the same is true of Lemonade Joe, that uh, they were parodying Westerns at a time when the Western was still something that was kind of an exotic thing in Czechoslovakia. So uh, they were kind of ahead of their own audiences, really. And uh, yes, and the James Bond parody is called, uh, this has another amazing title. This is called The End of Agent W4C uh, with the Help of the Dog of Mr. Fostka. So, uh, yeah, catchy, uh, snappy <laughs> title, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was reading some titles out to uh, my friend Chris uh, Stashu, and he was like, are you just making things up? I was like, no, 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 these are real things. What do you mean, I Killed Einstein, Gentleman? That's not a real movie. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, it is, it is. Just recently picked up, uh, Vorselec also did um, The Girl on the Broomstick, and I just picked up the soundtrack for that, because it is just an amazing soundtrack, and it is wonderful. And the music in this is also great, and goes really well with uh, the action, uh, too. At the time, I mean, Jonathan talking about how these guys were right there at the forefront of stuff. I mean, I'm trying to remember when things like Modesty Blaze and Barbarella and these kind of female-led comic adventures that were titillating but also adventuresome were happening. And it seems like Jesse is right there with those same characters, even though she, as far as I know, is a made-up character. I think they ended up making comics out of Jesse, but I could be wrong on that. I don't want to swear to that. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, the guy who um, drew, draws the pictures, who drew the pictures for the movie um, is a guy called Kaya Saudek. And he, I guess, is seen as one of the kind of great innovators of comics in Czechoslovakia, because I think at the time, Borley Czech has said that, I mean, comics were seen as a slightly kind of socially unwelcome element that I guess they were associated with the West and with America. So um, I think Saudek was around and he was drawing comics, but they were not really being published. So this is maybe the first taste that people would have had of his work. Uh, shortly after the movie, he did a comic serial with um, Milos Mazurek called Muriel and the Angels. That's uh, that the figure of Muriel in that is very obviously based on um, Olga Skovorova. So uh, she looks just the same as Jesse, basically. And uh, there's also like a winged character, a, winged, a man with wings. I think the reference to Barbarella is quite strong there. So I think that really, you know, that that really connects with what you're saying. I think about that connection with these other sort of comic book movies and um it is slightly ahead of the curve though isn't it because i think barbarella was made in um 68 if i'm right and um there's danger diabolic as well in italy and mm, it was something in the air i guess and then i guess pop art as well i think is a is a point of reference too really and watching this now too it's 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 kind of interesting to me especially in light of you know the me too movement but I, i also think that it's it, 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 it is an absurdist comedy at times, and I, I certainly appreciate it, but 
like it also reminds me of something a little creepy <laughs> just like something Dudley Moore might have done in the 80s where that fantasy girl comes to life and becomes this you know affectionate companion for the unfulfilled male and you know it, this takes a lighter approach to it but at the same time it's it's still you know a little creepy <laughs> now like just you know Jesse's like kind of immediately won over by this you know nerdy scientist's husband but I also don't I don't necessarily think of it as a criticism, especially for the time that it came out. It's just more of like something I, I found uh, like I was more aware of while rewatching it now, as opposed to when I watched it 20 years ago. It's weird science or mannequin kind of stuff. It's interesting that it doesn't extend that same fantasy to um, to the character of Rose, to the character of the wife of, uh, of uh, Yinji. Because she mm-hmm. uh, she takes a fancy to the Superman character, but of course that's a completely different scenario. Where I mean, he's doing anything he can to escape her. So uh, yes, there is a real sort of double standard there. I think that yes. it does. Uh, yes, it does extend the same uh, courtesy to her, really, to give her that uh, sort of fantasy uh, relationship. So yes, I, I think I was also. Uh, aware of that having watched it uh, again compared with when i originally watched it i think i was more aware of that yeah slightly creepy slightly uh slightly chauvinistic um attitude i think well yeah she's being punished because she's a woman with authority she's a woman who has her wants she has a very rigorous schedule let's say because we see at the beginning of the film that it is a thursday so uh yendrick is uh expected to come in and sleep with her on a thursday and that's the only time that they actually sleep in the same bed and i imagine uh copulate so that's you know that that's her thing it's like okay it's thursday come on in and that joke comes back a few times throughout the movie which is really nice i think we even end on a thursday kind of thing so um the <laughs> and there's uh who is it? oh the dog at one point when uh later on in the film when he's making out with olga uh sorry with jesse the dog has a word bubble of but uh henry it's not thursday <laughs> <laughs> Then it ends with Jesse basically turning into a uh, you know domestic figure of like, like have you fed the dog? And the, the look that he gives us at the end is just priceless. It's like, oh no, this isn't going to be the fantasy I thought it was going to be after all. Yeah, as soon as he gives her a voice or tells her to speak with a voice, the first thing that comes out is she's going to henpeck him. And it's like, oh, wah, wah. And you wonder what the sleeping arrangements will be from now on, because it's interesting that earlier on, I mean, it's not just that they have separate beds, but they have separate bedrooms, don't they? And you think, will that will that stay the same Will they move to the one bedroom? His bedroom almost reminds me of like the living room, like he's sleeping on the couch almost. You know, it is not a very big bed by any means of the the imagination. I mean, he has a single bed, whereas his wife has the big bed so that they can both fit in it. And her bed seems to be in a bedroom, whereas like his just seems to be in his office or something. It's like, okay, great. And she wears the pants in the family. She's the person you know who is a very prestigious scientist she is there you know at the beginning of the film showing off her new experiment but she's already experimented on the dog apparently because there's a, a mention at the beginning some of the i have to say the subtitles on this disc leave a lot to be desired and i'm hoping jonathan that your subtitles were better than than the facet subtitles because there's mention at the beginning of a rabbit 
And then later on, we see a rabbit. So I'm like, well, was this rabbit in the dog's dreams? Did it come out of the, the dream? Because it seems like the wife does not realize that her experiment has these side effects. That when she taps into someone's dreams, that she can actually bring out of the dreams physical objects that, you know, when they experiment, the first experiment we really see is her doing this experiment with a cow and the cow has had trouble sleeping. So they go into its dreams and they see that it's plagued by dreams of gadflies that all these flies are, are buzzing around its ears and driving it crazy. So then she gives it this formula to control its dreams and give it what it really wants, which is, to your point from earlier, it wants to lay in a hammock and be serenaded by a chamber orchestra, and then the flies come out of the dream. And then we get that again when she tries to control her husband's dreams, and then all of the characters from the comic book that he was uh, dreaming about end up coming out into real life. So I was curious about that rabbit and the dog, because it seems like there's a connection there, but I don't know what we're supposed to necessarily make of that from the beginning of the film. I didn't really think about that. I don't know if it's really any more clear in the version that I saw. Um, I mean, I think that that's probably now that you say that, I think that probably is true that the rabbit has materialized somehow from the dog's dream, because otherwise it would be a coincidence given that the dog is, seems to be dreaming about rabbits so uh but obviously she'd not worked out yet that there was this connection that the dreams would materialize in in real life so yes i think that's yes that's something i would not really picked up on really and there should be a scene i think where with her discovering the flies because she mentions it later on when uh her husband's dream figures come to life and materialize uh, in reality. She mentions it's the same thing with the flies. And I was like, oh, I didn't know. I didn't realize she knew about the flies. But at the same time, we got that scene with, you know, one of the technicians there swat trying to swat away flies and everything else. So I'm assuming she must have been aware of the fact of that, you know, the, the, these gadflies from the cow dream did externalize or did materialize early on. But we didn't really get an acknowledgement on her part until – she's uh, dealing with the uh, dream figures from her husband's dreams. So I felt like there should have been a little more clarity with her realizing early on that, oh, these flies are externalizing too. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a little confusion there. I think what's interesting about the whole setup of the uh, the science and the different inventions is how casual it is, really. I mean, I, I yeah. watched it again. I was uh, uh, amused by the fact that uh, everybody's um, raving about this this invention for removing the unpleasant dreams. But, I mean, the fact that there's also this sort of technology that allows people to see the vi- dreams visualized on a screen is just kind of passed over, isn't it, really? I mean... If, if if anything, I mean, even more amazing, and yet it's just taken for granted, isn't it, really? And, I mean, there's no sign that the film is really set in the future. I mean, it seems to be very much, you know, the contemporary Prague of the time, and uh, you have these incredible inventions which are just really uh, taken with a, you know, sort of off-handed kind of uh, approach like that. I thought that was another of those kind of off-handed and, and casual um, elements of the film, and... Um, Another thing that occurred to me watching it again is in terms of the, you know, sort of political and satirical elements is that 
I mean, in a way, this is like an image of censorship, isn't it? That uh, she sort of sees this little movie with the dream and then she sort of takes out the disturbing or the sort of immoral elements from them and replaces it with something that's kind of uplifting. And I was just thinking then when you were saying about the music that I guess this is an image of kind of, uh, you know, high culture and of kind of like moral uplift isn't it it's doing something uh, it's enjoying something healthy it's like a healthy kind of cultural experience it's not like uh, you know dreaming about sort of comic book characters or drinking beer it, this is something that uh, you know is something that's good for you so I think it has that resonance too doesn't it really of censorship and of uh, yes providing something that's kind of morally edifying yeah no that's a great point Jonathan I, I, I like the uh, the line at one point where they say, like, we are scientists. We're supposed to know what's good or bad for humanity. And it's like the idea of uh, this attempt to suppress the dreams of, of its subjects. Like, you can talk about that on a creative artistic level or with, you know, political ideology. I mean, just the idea of, like, there are people out there who want to, you know, force dreams or force an, a, a version of reality onto people that the way they think it should be. And once they realize that, like, oh, these people have their own individuality, their own individual desires and dreams, um, it's kind of hard to put that genie back into into the bottle. So I, I like that. I like that overall commentary. It's like the second time we see the machine being used, it's the wife wanting to censor her own husband's dreams. And just like it, it comes out of jealousy and out of spite. She sees him in this dream with Jesse and immediately is like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Yes. I, I think that's really uh, interesting as well. This kind of alignment of comic books as a kind of a form that was seen as uh, subversive in some way or, or, or was seen as decadent in some way with dreams, I guess, which also tend to be a problem for, authoritarian regimes i mean uh, uh it made me think about the fact that i mean freud was very much a, an unwelcome figure i mean the writings of freud were not uh, acceptable really in the soviet or in the communist context and i think that whole idea about you know your inner life your psychology being disturbing somehow or being disruptive i think is really interesting and i guess we can c connect that with surrealism as well i mean you know, the liberty to dreams quote, I mean, is, is really a sort of a surrealist uh, incantation as well, isn't it? And the whole thing of uh, Henry slash Yindrick um, at work, I, I'm trying to really kind of figure out what's going on with his job situation, but his boss seems to be really on him. <laughs> Yindrick has this whole cadre of female assistants, which is really interesting. <laughs> That it's like him as the lone male in his office when he actually goes into his office, and they seem very concerned about you know serving him coffee and and um, that they keep the coffee in the safe is a really weird little touch too because that safe comes back later on, and they seem to know that he's spending his time rather than necessarily working, he's getting his inspiration from comic books like he's got like a scientific journal wrapped around a comic and he's reading the adventures of Jesse and seeing that. And then that is though, giving him inspiration for these anti-gravitational gloves that she has. So basically to explain to the audience, like these gloves that she wears because they can have this field of anti-gravitational or whatever. So she can lift up heavy objects, punch people and they go flying you know, do all these kind of things with these gloves and that will help him 
at work, so he tries to figure out how he could actually make those gloves a reality from the comic book, and not necessarily, like, actually literally taking them out of the comic book like his wife will, you know, kind of do with the characters because the gloves don't translate, but trying to make those things a reality, and that becomes his inspiration. So something good is really coming out of these comic books is that they're inspiring him to make, again, this crazy invention that is going to be super powerful that people just don't even seem to blink at. Because later on, when he is lifting that safe up, his boss is just like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> just put that down kind of thing. Yeah, again, another uh, moment of suppression, you could say. But Henry reminds me a little bit of Michael Stubarg in uh, A Serious Man. Like, he's he's a little naive, but he, he does mean well. And, uh, I mean, he puts a lot of energy into academics, it seems, but not so much into his personal life, into his marriage. And seems to have, like, these yeah, con- conflicted relationships and everything. And he wants to escape into this comic book world. And it makes sense that he would dream about it and sort of wish that he could be a part of that. You know, it's just, again, it's like the male fantasy to some degree, but it's also like, I wish I could be more than I am kind of approach to the story that I like as well. It's interesting to see that connection between fantasy or I guess art, form of art and real sort of practical uh, scientific uses as well. And I think that's one of the really nice things about the film that it's, uh, and again, I think this is an idea that's, you know, fairly offhand, it's fairly casually brought in, but it's there. I think that, uh, you know, art and science, I mean, they're not necessarily polar opposites. You can find ideas that are practically useful or that are sort of scientifically useful in forms of art. And uh, I guess, as you, as Mike said, I mean, comic books, I mean, they do have their uses. They're not just this uh, this sort of decadent, sort of frivolous thing. I mean, you can find things in them that will be helpful and uh I think also the the work that Yinjik does, um, I guess, is contrasted with uh, the work of Rosie because his work, I mean, I guess, is useful. It's practically useful and it doesn't have that kind of association of this kind of uh, utopianism or this this, um, rather creepy idea of social control that hers does. So uh, I guess they're both scientists, but I mean, his is a more... I guess, a more sort of genuinely useful, genuinely practical application of of science. After Rosie sees the dreams that Henry is having, that Yindrick is having, she tries to quash those and, of course, ends up bringing to life, bringing out into the world Jesse and then her two antagonists, which are a character that we will call Superman and then Pistolnik. And Superman, when I saw him originally, because they show him in the comic strip uh, drawn, and then also we get uh, some uh, of him in the dream. I didn't realize that he was a Superman character. I thought he was more of a Tarzan character, but then he ends up having, you know, he, he almost has the Superman crest and he can fly and all this, though he's a little limited on his abilities. He's not quite, you know, Kal-El type abilities because they end up using rope and <laughs> managing to tie him down. But of course, because we're bringing these characters out of comics into the real world, they have no idea what's going on. And thus, you know, we have what we would expect to have, which is a scene of just absolute insanity and destruction as they go through and are, you know, breaking up the apartment, 
causing a lot of disturbance. The whole thing with the neighbor next door who's calling and uh, complaining about uh, the noise. <laughs> and then this whole visual gag of him getting closer and closer to the wall and the Superman character pulling the phone cord as if the, the cord itself is actually like going through the wall from one phone to the other. <laughs> <laughs> which is nice. And then he ends up like pulling the guy through the wall and they're able to escape because apparently since they locked the apartment door, they weren't able to escape from the apartment. <laughs> so, but now they have an exit and they go out and they cause destruction, especially Superman causes destruction and they all end up getting caught. And now it's, it's Yendrick's fault. It's Henry's fault because these were his dreams causing all of this destruction. So they end up, for lack of a better term, they end up having a show trial and put these characters on trial. And it seems like Rosie seems like she's the one who's prosecuting him. Or she, or yeah, or she's a prosecution. But yes, definitely. She's uh, not making his case any better. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, 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 just going back to the, the Superman figure, I think that's another really interesting thing, isn't it? That he's actually also a bad character and, uh, I believe I've seen it suggested in different places that uh, maybe that came from the fact that uh, the, the the sort of the the, the knowledge of uh, sort of American pop culture was so limited in Czechoslovakia that the filmmakers didn't know that Superman was actually like a good character originally. And I'm not sure if I buy that. I think to me it's more like a deliberate kind of pop art style play and an inversion of a kind of a familiar kind of cultural trope. So I I, I would tend to the latter reading really but i mean the first one is a possibility too and uh, i believe the actor was um i believe was not really a professional actor i think he was like a bodybuilder from slovakia who the uh, the assistant of borlicek had gone out to find i think he'd heard about this guy who was this uh, you know prominent sort of physical culturist in in bratislava and and just sort of recruited him for this one role and uh the Tarzan element is there too, isn't it? I think in swinging. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's definitely a point of reference as well. Yeah. And it does sort of predate the imagination behind something like Roger Rabbit, where the humans interact with these characters and in, in ways that are very much like a cartoon. I mean, certainly the, the T square battle and some of these action sequences are delightfully kind of cartoonish and, you know, you mentioned the music, you know, it reminds you like a, like a Dixieland kind of score at times. And, you know, some people might, you know, minimalize it or say like, oh, it's this music's a little Benny Hill-esque. <laughs> but I, I still think it's charming in its own right. And like we do get the social commentary throughout and it, it has that nice balance and it still has like a little touch of Boonwell with mixing in a little social commentary. And I mean, throughout, throughout I'm con- consistently smiling through this movie and it's one of those movies too where I think it like the 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 length is perfect. Like it doesn't I don't know if it needs to be 90 minutes. I think if it was it would be fine, but it felt like oh this is a great place to end and even if it's short it feels right. Yeah, the whole thing too when they come out of the comic books that I don't think we necessarily have mentioned is that they can't speak. They speak in word bubbles. And there's a great moment in the trial where Jesse says something and the the stenographer for the trial can't see it because it's facing one way. So they take the word bubble and actually flip it around <laughs> so, so that the stenographer can see it and write it down. And then they let it go back. And the whole thing of, of Yindrick 
like reaching up and kind of getting rid of the word bubbles. Like if he doesn't like what something says, he'll like, you know, reach up and just kind of bat it away. And there's also moments too, when they're one, well, when they're doing a lot of things, but especially when they're uh, kind of breaking down the apartment where you get like action lines, animated action lines happening on screen as well, that they're not super prominent, but they're just like these nice touches as far as like, you know, when you hit something in a comic book, you get the action lines and they're doing that same thing in the real real world as far as like, I'm going to hit this wall really hard and then we're going to get shaky lines that come out of it. And there's the uh, the little boy as well, isn't there, who's, who's uh, urinating through the gutter and then uh, Superman sort of curses him and then the boy says, but I can't read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of the biggest laughs for sure. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I love that sense of physicality in the bubbles too, the way that they can just turn them around or destroy them. And uh, I'm really glad that Jim mentioned Roger Rabbit because I, I think that was sort of just there at the back of my mind too. And um, in sort of uh, doing a bit of reading around the film last night, I uh, came across a reference to the novel, the original novel of Roger Rabbit, which apparently does have the same device uh, because I think in the novel of Roger Rabbit, they are meant to be sort of comic strip characters. And when they come to life, they produce uh, a real speech bubble so uh, that's kind of a fascinating connection really I don't know whether the writer of the novel had seen this film or I mean I guess Lichtenstein Roy Lichtenstein was sort of obsessed with speech bubbles too so I guess there's kind of a a wider fascination with this but um, to me that's quite a quite an interesting connection really. A good speech bubble really does so many great things like I, i'm rereading a series right now called chu chew which is about a guy named john chu chu who can has a psychic connection to food and last night i was reading a panel and he was uh he was basically what he was saying was dripping with sarcasm so the actual word bubble looked like it was dripping down like it was melting and it's just like those kind of things you know add so much to a comic overall and you know in those those lines those action lines and those kind of things just really add so much it's it's really a, a nice thing and i guess too when i think about it here we are talking about this in 1966 and at the same time over in the u.s batman was happening and that was rife with those things as far as like the bam pow and all those kind of things so those kind of fight things are very much you know like we don't get bam and pow and those kind of like words going across screen but as far as the actual motions and animations of those we get those in you know plenty in who wants to kill jesse yeah for sure and as i was watching this i all i could think of is i want to hire michelle gondry to do a remake of this i i mean it would be i know he did the science of sleep which i don't know i don't can't recall like if there were thought bubbles, but it wouldn't surprise me if there's something along those lines in those dream sequences and in, in the science of sleep. Um, but I know that the, there was talk of a remake of this uh, early on with like Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. And I think that would have been something else. I would, I would have been, on, I would have been on board for that probably because I just like this scenario, this, this overall concept. I think you can do so much with it. And maybe that's my, my only critique is like, I want more weird cow dreams in this movie <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, the the first dream the dream that um henry has i mean i, I think that's uh, yeah. something i would have liked to have seen more of too because it's um it's not really like anything else in the rest of the film is it i mean most of the other dreams i mean they have a realistic location but in this one you've got this kind of weird sort of swamp location and then you go into this strange 
what looks at first like a kind of gothic castle, <clears throat> but it's actually the, this restaurant, isn't it? And you've got the cobwebs and I think there's like a violin playing, isn't there? And uh, it's a very strange, yeah, very strange and, and very kind of imaginatively designed uh, little world of its own, really. And yes, I would have liked to have uh, seen more of that, I think. Yeah, it has like a German expressionist kind of quality to it. I, th- I think it's really cool and really well done. Mm. And I, I believe actually that um, this was one of the films that was sold to Italy in the 60s. It was one of a number of uh, Czech films. And of course, the Italian, um, I think it was Maurice Ergas, who was working for Carlo Ponti, who bought the rights to it. And what they tended to do was to um, have new scenes shot for them that would be a bit more risque than anything in the original. And I believe that one of the things that they added was I think they did add more scenes, uh, more dream sequences in a castle, apparently. And I think they oh. had kind of like women who were sort of tied to the walls and things like that. And I guess the emphasis was on making it a bit more risque. But uh, apparently, yes, they did add a bit more sort of dream content. So that would be uh, I've still not seen it yet, but I would uh, I would like to try and track that down, really. Wow. Yeah. Sign me up. If you ever find it, let me know. Same here. I don't want to sound like every other male-hosted podcast out there, but Olga Shoberova, <laughs> she is extremely attractive, and she ended up, she's got, like, kind of an adult past and then an adult future after this, too. I think she ended up being a Playboy bunny for a little bit, and she would go on to actually be in, I think, at least one Italian film, uh, Papaya's Hot Nights, and then she was even in a, a Hammer film, The Vengeance of She. So, yeah, she's got an amazing filmography, and she was, wasn't, well, she was active for a lot of the 60s into the 70s, and then kind of slowed down after 71, but she did make a few appearances after 71. Uh, like I said, she was in Dinner for Adele, and she was in Forcelect's, uh You Are a Widow, Sir. And she was also in, oh God, I always screw up this guy's, Jakubisko, his uh, See You in Hell Friends, which um, uh, as far as I remember, that movie got shelved or censored for a long time. So, um, But it is available if you look hard enough to see it now. Absolutely, yeah, that's a great movie. And she she made a few, um, I, I believe she made a few Westerns as well, I think, in Germany. And um, yeah, I think she's a really interesting figure because I guess she was really the only um, Czech star of the 60s who did have that kind of international breakthrough, really. And uh, yes, as you say, she she was in America for a while. She, she uh, I think she did pose for Playboy and she... I think at one point was married to John Kelly, who was the head of Warner Brothers um, during the 70s. And, and uh, what was fascinating to me was to read recently about the fact that she was I think she was married to him and she was based in the US, but then would come back to Czechoslovakia every so often to do one of these movies with uh, Lipsky or whoever. And uh, that's just a really interesting idea isn't it of being sort of like between Czechoslovakia and the US like that at this time when you know we think of the kind of Cold War scenario and she was kind of moving back and forth between the two. Just to pile on to the whole Roger Rabbit thing it's interesting because the original title the Czech title of this is um, and I won't try to pronounce this but basically the second word so um you know, who wants to kill Jesse? This, the last two words is Zabit Jesse, which actually, as far as I know, translate Zabit is rabbit. So who wants to kill rabbit Jesse? Oh. So, which knowing Roger Rabbit's wife's name, that's interesting. 
and there are rabbits in the film, aren't there? So yes, yeah, there's a <laughs> there's a connection there. Yeah, and she basically is that that rabbit that comes out of the dream. You know, she is that that character. And eventually, Henry gets in trouble for his dreams and this whole thing of "Are you responsible for your dreams?" Again, talking about you know this whole idea of uh, the secondary story to this. You know, are you responsible for your dreams? Is almost akin to saying are you responsible for your thoughts you know just because you think something bad does that mean that you should get in trouble for it and the answer in this film is yes you should get in trouble for it at least by the film's logic and he ends up going to jail for all of three days and i love this that he's in court and he's there on trial and he finds a book right by him that says how to survive in jail and when he gets into jail, he's got money tucked everywhere, and he knows, probably from reading this book, that now he has to pay the guard off every time he wants something. So he's asking the guard for this, asking the guard for that, you know, hey, can you contact my uh, assistant and tell her this? And the guard's like, hmm, well, and he produces money, you know, can you can you do this for me? Well, I don't know. Okay, here you go. And like, even at one point, he's like, I need three things. And the guard's like, well, that's just one. And so he ends up get, giving him two more, you know, pieces of, of, of change or whatever. So he's constantly paying this guard off, which is a, a great uh, thing to just show how corrupt the system is. And I love that he's there for all of three days for all this wanton destruction and ends up basically just walking out of jail at one point when he realizes that all he has to do is wear a different coat. He ends up painting his coat a different color, and then he can just walk out with the rest of the guards. You know, it kind of, it's like the, uh, the uh, incredible prison escape from idiocracy. You know, he just walks right out the front door, basically. The fact that there is this book isn't the house to behave in, in jail, and then that there is this, this uniform sort of readily stuffed with money. Um, I mean, that's another great kind of satirical jibe, isn't it, about the, I think, the sort of prevalence of bribery and the way bribery and corruption, I mean, they're built into the system. I mean, they're, they're, everything is there, set up, ready for you to indulge in it. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it's something that I picked up on again watching it this time. Maybe because I'm more cynical now, I kind of uh, got more from that, I think, this time. Yeah, no, and it's interesting. You talked a little bit about just being able to control your dreams, and I think in like kind of an alternate scenario of some kind, it would be really interesting to see like a like a dark comedy take on well, what if Freddy Krueger would be put on trial? You know, it's like you can't control what pops into your head during you know your sleep. So uh, I think a lot of us just wake up sometimes going, "Man, I can't believe I dreamed that thing," and. And, and just the idea of, I think that would, I think it would be terrifying if any of those things that have appeared in dreams were to be were to materialize. But they take a more like lighthearted comic approach. It would be interesting to see something like a darker take on that, where you know maybe like a Freddy Krueger type figure were to manifest themselves into reality. And I guess it kind of does at one point in the original Nightmare on Elm Street towards the end. But you know he kind of goes in a completely different direction with having him like. Uh, essentially melt or be caught on fire during the like uh, the final moments of the bed in the bed where he sort of like sinks into the bed at the end. But I don't know. I just always find that just the idea of this is really you can go so many places with it, and I, I do like where they go. I think again, maybe it's the same um, argument I meant, meant, made earlier was just like let's see some more dreams. Let's see what m- more people are are experiencing and thinking. I mean, obviously we get 
Rose's side later on, where she's kind of like, eventually she, I guess she just becomes a dream figure and sinks into the uh, dog's dreams. That's how her fate becomes. For a lot of this second half of the movie, we're just doing cross-cutting between what Henry's doing and what uh, Rosie's doing. And this, so Henry is really trying to make these anti-gravitational gloves work. And he really wants to have that happen so that he can then turn around and save Jesse. And Rosie, her only thing is, I want to now destroy these dream figures. And trying all of these different things to destroy these figures, she takes Superman and puts him into basically into a crematorium, (laughs) which is a really horrifying scene. Puts him into there, just wheels him right into there. And that affects him. Not at all. He, he comes out of it. It's just like, Oh, how much do I? Oh yeah. That was really refreshing. (laughs) Yeah. And the way they, they, they try to get rid of Jesse. Um, you mentioned it actually in the show notes too. I was like, I, I, what is this reminding me? Of? What is this reminding me of? And I was like, oh yeah, the hitcher. Right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's what they do in the hitcher. And I love that they ask, can't she be reeducated? And it's just like, ooh, that's a really horrible thing to say in Czechoslovakia, nineteen sixty six, man. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, and he's actually the more humane one as well, isn't he? I mean, he's a relatively humane character, isn't he? Um, this is Cole Barber, I think, isn't it, who says that? And yes, he's horrified at the idea of having to sort of eliminate these characters. And that has lots of other associations, doesn't it, as well, historically, I think. The, 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 I mean, this is made before the cremator, isn't it, which is interesting. So again, you have this image of cremation as a kind of uh, politically charged idea of, of uh, you know, eliminating people who are undesirable. And um, I think what's really interesting as well is the language that's used, isn't it, because they talk about removing people and uh, I think there's a sort of a nice little commentary on there about the the way that the language is sanitized to sort of mask, you know, what they're really doing. And uh, I think one of the other scientists, when uh, they believe that Superman has already been cremated, he says he starts off by saying, you know, death occurred. And then he changes it and he says, well, uh, the first illusion or the first vision was removed at this time. And it's about that kind of self censorship of language isn't it to to kind of make this seem more sanitary and and more uh more uh more acceptable yeah exactly we don't want to say that we've killed anyone especially because these don't exist you know hey that's that's fine they're just figments of the imagination so we're not actually murdering anyone (laughs) we're not actually tearing jesse apart in two by two semi-trucks which, you know, I was just talking recently about how horrific that scene in The Hitcher is, and just the idea of it. And then here yeah. we have it repeated in this, and it's just like, oh, God, this is horrible. But it just doesn't phase Jesse whatsoever. She's just like, okay. Like, you know, the, <laughs> these two things are, are, uh, are backing up as fast as they can, and she's just like, kind of bored by it all, and they're digging themselves in deeper. And then we've got, uh, Henry coming to the rescue and saving her, though it's it's not a 100% save because it's kind of nice. His gloves don't work exactly the way that they should. And Jesse ends up figuring out where his error in his math is. So that's kind of a nice thing to give her a little bit of intelligence as well. She's not just a pretty face. Absolutely. I mean, I was watching that again and I was thinking, well, 
I mean, when it starts, when you first see her in the comic strip, I mean, she, she's this sort of brilliant scientist and she's, she's devised these gloves and uh, that's how it's set up. And then when she sort of materialises in real life, she's, uh, you know, a much more conventional figure in a way, isn't she? She's this sort of damsel in distress figure and uh, doesn't really show a lot of kind of scientific brilliance. And uh, it's nice that there is that moment at the end when she she does solve the equation. I mean, it's, it's a brief moment, but I think it's a nice way of... Uh, uh, yes of giving that other dimension to this character that she's not just a sex object and not just uh, this kind of male fantasy figure what what was really interesting watching it again and thinking about the the scene where she's being uh, uh, torn apart or they're trying to tear her apart is the movie's logic because i think at some point she actually does suffer pain doesn't she when she's when superman is uh, beating her and and so i i kind of wondered what what is the uh, what is the logic of that i mean sometimes she does seem to suffer pain and then at other times she's just this superhuman figure who's resistant to any kind of physical threat so uh, yes it, it seems to kind of have it both ways really i think it seems like the bad cowboy character, the outlaw it seems like he kind of gets lost in the shuffle around here unless i just look down and lost where he went because towards the end of the movie he's he's still there and he seems to be an okay dude but like they don't really try to murder him like they try to murder superman they try to murder jesse but as far as i know and please correct me if i'm wrong they don't really try to uh, murder the cowboy yeah i believe you're right and he doesn't seem to have the the same uh trajectory or arc (laughs) that the other two seem to have um, he does kind of get lost in the shuffle. I, I would agree. He's kind of a henchman figure in a way, isn't he, I guess? And, uh, yeah. and, then, and then at the end, he, he's actually in the laboratory, isn't he, with Henry and, and with Jesse. So oh, right, yeah. I think, well, but yes, as you say, I think it's not really clearly uh, sort of set out, is it? I mean, has he become a good character at this point? Was he just being sort of led astray by Superman? But yes, I would have liked a bit more of him, I think. And I believe that the Italian title of the film was just Superman wants to kill Jesse. So I think uh, that re- I think reflects the fact that he, he is kind of sidelined a bit, isn't he? The cowboy figure. And uh, mm-hmm. yes, I would have liked more of uh, any, any, uh, you know, any more Carol Ether. I think he's always uh, worthwhile just because he's such a great face and such a great presence. Yeah. That face is amazing. He is just, he's built for villainy. It's so great. I love that sight gag too when, uh, because when Henry's in his prison cell, he asks the guard for a pencil. And, uh, of course, you know, that's going to cost him some money. And he ends up writing his, his figures down about the glove and figuring out the glove. It's basically, it's the classic scene of the crazy guy who's writing on the prison walls, right? You know, we've seen Anthony Hopkins do it. We've seen John Hurt do it recently. So it's like, we know that there's something going on there. And that's where, you know, he brings Jesse back to his prison cell and she makes the correction to the figures. And then the guard comes in. It's like, okay, your three days is up basically. So it's time to leave. And he sees Henry there with Jesse and he's really kind of flummoxed. Those two take off and he looks at the wall and he's just like, hmm, mathematics. (laughs) (laughs) So stupid joke, but it's pretty funny. And then he's looking at Jesse as well, isn't he? And he's just like amazed that she, about her. And then Henry thinks that he's looking at the gloves and that he's amazed by them. And it's, yeah, a lot of those kind of classic uh, nerdy sort of uh, misunderstandings. 
And then, yeah, the Rosie has fallen in love with Superman and that whole thing where she is now the predatory female, which is always a, a weird thing. Like, I never understood when it came to Married with Children. I mean, I was all about, you know, the, the wife character on that show. So her wanting to constantly have sex with Al, I was just like, you are the biggest dolt in the world. I mean, here you have this vivacious, buxom, beautiful woman, and I don't understand why you don't want to have sex with her. And now Rosie's doing the same thing with Superman. And when she turns off the lights and it's like, hey, it's Thursday, and he gives his no as a word bubble in the black, which is kind of nice. It's uh, a good thing. So he's the next morning, he is uh, done with this whole thing and ends up taking the formula that caused him to come out of the dream and that then disperses him and he goes into he goes into the dog's head correct so he now becomes part of the dog's dream yeah and then like the dog is chasing the rabbit but uh she's chasing superman right <laughs> yeah they find that out when they come back home jesse and henry come back home and yeah turn on the the dream machine basically and see now the two pursuits going on, the dog chasing the rabbit and Rosie chasing Superman. And so, yeah, I guess you can just take yourself and turn yourself into a dream. But it's a nice way to end it. A nice way to, quote unquote, get rid of the Rosie character and then have us have that nice end where we have Jesse learning how to speak and then immediately badgering <laughs> Henry. <laughs> <laughs> and that turn to the camera, breaking the fourth wall with the it's a living kind of a thing. So that's a beautiful note to end on. <laughs> There's a little bit of young Frankenstein as well. In sure. that, I think with the, the sort of switch around and, and uh, the, the Madeline Kahn character is a bit like Rosie, isn't she? And that she has the upper hand in that last scene when they're in bed together. And he, he doesn't want to know, does he really? He's kind of not interested. And um and I think the idea of the Superman is kind of interesting if you kind of associate it with her character, because I guess, uh, although we think of Superman as, as a sort of an American trope, I mean, I guess there is also that idea of the uh, this kind of like pro-Soviet, this kind of pro-communist uh, figure, which is, I guess, what she implicitly is identified as, I mean, with this figure of the kind of heroic worker, the heroic sort of Superman-like worker. So I guess there is a sort of logic to that in terms of the sort of the political or satirical elements, as well as just the fact that, you know, she wants this big stud, you know. I mean, there's there's a few ways of uh, reading that, I think. Yeah, she wants to uh, take the Man of Marble, or was it Man of Marble or Man of, Man of Steel? So I guess he really is the Man of Steel. And, uh, yeah, wants to slum it with one of the workers, and he wants nothing to do with that. So let's go ahead and take a break and play a few words from our sponsors, then we'll be right back. Have a hunger for horror? A yen for Yelp yarns? Then give your blood-curdled bones a boon and tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. Join sordid slime-slingers Casualty Chris and Father Malone as they take on HBO's groundbreaking television series, Tales from the Crypt. Here's what the rotting and rancid rabble are saying about Chronicles from the Crypt. <laughs> Chronicles from the Crypt, you have nothing to lose except your life. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. 
Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? All right, we are back, and we we're talking about who would kill Jesse. I think the disc is called Who Wants to Kill Jesse, and then I've seen it as Who Would Like to Kill Jesse. So I, I've probably have screwed up the title a few times while I've been talking about this movie, but it's all the same movie, folks. It's just Who and Jesse, so somewhere in there. And then apparently we know who wants to kill Jesse, and that's Rosie. So she wants to, to kill Jesse. So that, that's the answer. Thanks for listening. Bye. I'm just waiting for technology to catch up to this movie or, you know, invent an app to where I can watch my cat's dreams on my phone. I wouldn't be surprised if someday down the road you have like a little electrodes and you can um, watch from the comfort of your own laptop, watch your dreams or something. Well, I was getting mad the other day because I was thinking of an email message and I was just like, well, why can't I just think this and have it translate into words rather than why do I actually have to have a physical interface and type this thing down? And we're getting to that point. Who knows? <laughs> One of these days. And I wonder if it would be possible for the dreams to be as they are in the movie where you actually see it. You don't see it from the point of view of the dreamer. You see it in this kind of very three-dimensional sort of movie-like way. I mean, that would be pretty good to see yourself in the dream. And Yeah, that's always the problematic thing is you don't want to shoot it POV, right? You don't want to be like, this is what's happening to me in the dream because then it just becomes strange. And then, you know, it's kind of like those weird things where you're doing POV shots and you're actually like showing the blinks and everything. It's like, oh, okay. I, I guess that's what Gaspar Noé film, right? And it's just like, no, I don't really want to see this. I don't want to have it from this point of view. I want to go back to that third person POV and see the characters. So 
I don't know. It's it that's always the troubling thing. It's it's <laughs> it's like when you see uh flashbacks in movies and you see the person who's having the flashback inside of the flashback and it's like were you really <laughs> there or were you just thinking about this? So I guess it's just cinematic conventions. Being, being John Malkovich would be a whole other movie if it was just from the point of view of John Malkovich the entire movie. You know, <laughs> you have to cut back and forth between different points of view, I think. That was a point of reference that I thought of as well, actually. I think, yeah, being John Malkovich, uh, I don't know if it took anything from this, but I think that there definitely is a connection there, isn't there? I think especially the ending, the fact that, you know, you have this, uh, basically Rosie is sort of trapped inside the dog, but I think still somehow mm. is... Uh, participating because i guess that that speech bubble comes from her doesn't it through the dog and uh it's a bit like that ending of john malkovich isn't it with the, the i believe it's the little girl isn't it and uh she's kind of yeah. watching the, the characters at the end i didn't think about that i didn't think about the the speech bubble coming from the wife that's funny it's not really clear yeah i mean it uh i guess the sort of a dog producing speech bubbles i mean at this point in the movie is plausible too but no, it makes sense. What you're saying makes total sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that interpretation. Yeah, me too. I have to say, I like this movie a lot better than Tarsum Singh's The Cell. That's like the movie I always think of when I think of bad dream movies, um, especially since they solve the entire case, not through going into Vincent D'Onofrio's dreams, but actually through good detective work. So the whole dream thing really isn't even necessary to the movie. But this movie dreams are right there at the four and yeah and i would say yeah to your point jonathan if folks enjoy this film definitely check out the end of agent w4c you are widow sir girl on a broomstick i think we're going to have to do girl on a broomstick one of these days i have not seen a bad film from for the check and it's kind of nice he's still working uh i tried my best to find contact information for him and uh do an interview with him i was unable to but yeah he's still going strong born in 1930 and he's still making movies he just got awarded i can't remember what the award was but he was just at a ceremony i think in august he and jeremy renner were at a ceremony where they're getting an award so of course it was all about jeremy renner since you know he's an avenger but it was like and also this guy this czechoslovakian filmmaker was also there and i was like wow that's pretty impressive no i'm definitely gonna be checking out more films like this and from this era um, there's one that I know Dana Madrika is in that seems to get a lot of praise called, I can't, I can't say it right, but Ikiri XB1. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a great yeah. one. Yeah. Okay. okay. I'm going to look, get that one right away. Cause it sounds right up my alley. It, it's not really a comedy, but it's this great, um, great sci-fi, uh, space travel movie. And, um, mm-hmm. That's often um, tied to 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I think there are some theories around as to whether Kubrick saw it before he made 2001, and I believe he did, actually, and yeah, there's lots of uh, things that you can read sort of connecting those two movies, and uh, yes, that's a really great movie. Yeah, I'm going to be re-watching that again before our coverage of 2001 in December, and also, one called, I think it's To the Stars the Hard Way. He seemed to be a fan of uh, Russian science fiction as well. So let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Roses are red, violets are blue, but the iris is the flower that will mean the end of it. 
Suspiria, the most terrifying film you've ever heard. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. That's right, we'll be back next week where we'll be kicking off our Shocktober coverage. I kind of like Chicktember better than Shocktober, but what are you going to do? With a discussion of Dario Argento's Suspiria. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jonathan and Jim. Jim, what's been going on with you, sir? Uh, mainly working freelance here and there. I'm going to be officially starting a film review gig writing for McGill's Cinema Annual very soon, as well as covering the Chicago International Film Festival, which people can check out both in podcasting and writing form over at VoicesVisions.net. But most importantly, I want people to check out the Now Playing Network for other great podcasts like Supporting Characters and Pure Cinema, which feature many of your past guests taking part, um, either as hosts or guests. So please check out NowPlayingNetwork.net as well. And Jonathan, I know we just talked recently on our episode about Deep End, but for folks who might not have caught that, shame on you. Uh, what have you been doing? What's been keeping you busy? Well, I've got a few pieces in the pipeline, a few pieces that are soon to be published. Uh, I've got a piece on um, Czech pop music and the new wave of the 60s, uh, and that's going to be published in um, an edited volume uh, called Popular Music and the Moving Image in Eastern Europe. And that should be due out in December from uh, Bloomsbury Press. And um, it's got lots of great pieces in it. Uh, the stuff about Yugoslav disco, Hungarian rap, uh, Romanian film musicals from the communist period. So, uh, yeah, I really recommend uh, reading the uh, the other pieces in that. And uh, I'm also um, currently writing a piece about Uri Hertz uh, for a book collection on Barandov Studios. And that should be published hopefully next year at some point. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
awake, they won't let me alone. They don't get paid to take vacations, I'll let me alone. They spy on me, I try to hide, they won't let me alone. They persecute me, then the judge and jury on it. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.